0: wonderful thing. Well, please grab your Bibles, and we're going to be in all over the place today. And so it's not just one spot, but also want to mention the Church Center app. You can uh, have all the slides that are here. You can take notes on those slides, follow along. It's all there on the app for you if that's the way you uh, choose to engage the service, either here or online uh, this morning. But today we're starting a new, very short, two-Sunday-only sermon series called Sexuality. And we're going to be diving into the topic of sex sexuality, and gender. And this is, uh, this is a timely message. This is an important message, uh, I think, for today as well as next Sunday, as uh, we really have the goal that as a church that we together, that we would step into this topic and we would have a clarity where there's a whole lot of confusion out there that we would have compassion where there's division, and that we would be able to, uh, as a church family, develop and be able to articulate a biblical worldview in a time when we desperately need this. This church, like many others, we are filled with, with parents, uh, grandparents, with, with leaders in the community, in the business world, with, uh, with teachers and coaches, and I think, again, we need to be able to address these kind of things. And it's important as a church that we talk about it because culture's talking about it. And what they're saying isn't always helpful. I want to just ask or give a disclaimer here right at the beginning that for, for some here, this today as well as next Sunday could be a challenging series uh, for a number of reasons. It could be because we're going to talk about something that uh, touches on maybe something that you're struggling with. Or, or maybe it touches on a topic that is connected to somebody that you know and love, like a family member that is, is going through something and you know they are and, and you're navigating this and how do I love them well through this? There could be something that I say that you disagree with. There could be something that I say that you find hurtful. But I wanna say out the beginning, that is not my goal. As one of your pastors that loves you very much, my goal is to open God's word to give you God's truth. To, with clarity, I hope, and boldness to take on these topics in honest kinds of ways that we can, we can have a conversation about them. We can, in other words, normalize the conversation and that you would leave after not only today, but next Sunday as well, more equipped when it comes to what we see going on in the world today. So here's our plan. Our plan is this. Today is sort of a part one. Next Sunday is a part two. Today, we're gonna take on one question. And the question is, how did we get to where we're at today? We're gonna go back in time about five decades or so and work our way up to the things that we're seeing today and and unpack how we got here. Next Sunday is part two. And next Sunday, we're gonna dive specifically into the topic of what the Bible has to say and what we see going on in culture in the area of gender, gender dysphoria, and the transgender movement. And so between those two, part one and part two, hopefully you have a good and holistic uh, picture for this important topic here. So hopefully uh, you have your Bible and the the notes on the back. You can certainly take notes as well um, here with your, your bulletin there. Let's begin with the question of how did we get here? Because the reality is 40, 50 years ago, for a church to take on a sermon series like we're about to do would have been unthinkable. It's not something that they would, any church would have thought about or would have articulated or done, but we also know that times are rapidly changing, that the way people uh, think, the things that people do, the things that we see in culture and in the news that we might find shocking, it's, it's happening so quick right in front of us, especially in the area that we're going to be talking about with gender and with gender dysphoria and all that's attached to it. We see that, we're experiencing that. And to understand, how, understand more of what's going on in the world, I think we need to get into the mindsets of, of where people are at who are a part of the movements that we're seeing here today. And so, as I just mentioned, to do that, I wanna go back to a key place in American history. We're gonna go back to the 60s. Some of you are like, yep, I remember the 60s. Live through the 60s. But I want to go back and start with the sexual revolution. And The reason for that is because that was a massive cultural catalyst that not only impacted the times then, but has had a repercussion that has echoed throughout the decades, and it continues to splash into our times as well today. You see, the 60s, the sexual revolution, was all about becoming unhindered. It was sort of this slogan of, if it feels good, do it. If it feels good, it can't be bad, and on like that. And the impact of that type of thing was significant. Specifically, the revolution, the sexual revolution was built on two lies. And these are not just dusty lies from the past. They are lies that began with this movement and we as a culture bought it and we're still buying it today. And it still is prevalent today and is impacting us today and explains a lot of why we are at where we're at today. And so our goal here this morning is to unpack these two lies. To to share them with you, to identify them, just to put them out there in front of everybody, talk about them, contrast them with what the Bible says about it, and then finally end up with what do we do about this as we take on the question, how do we get to where we are today? Here's lie number one as we get started. Lie number one for your bulletin, fill in the blankets, this idea of what's called expressive individualism. Probably a term you haven't heard But this is the crux, if you will, of the sexual revolution and what we're seeing in place today, expressive individualism. And what this means, and here's what the lie is, and it's your very next fill in the blank just to keep it going, it's this idea that my identity, so in other words, who I am, who I believe I am, is only discovered when I express outwardly my inward feelings, So I find out who I am. My identity is discovered when I express outwardly my inward feeling. So whatever you think, and especially today, whatever it is you feel, let it out. Express it. Get it out. Because as you do that, unhindered, that's how you discover who you are. It's through that process. And so in that, we've, we've developed these slogans. You've heard them before. You do you follow your truth, find yourself, the most famous, follow your heart. These are all types of slogans that articulate this expressive individualism as you've just got to, whatever you feel, get it out, live it out, do it, because as you do, you'll discover who you are. It's in that process. Now, let me just contrast this right away because the Bible teaches the exact opposite. The Bible teaches the exact opposite, that we are not to look to our thoughts and feelings, to form truth or to shape our identity. In fact, in Jeremiah chapter 17, verse nine, just look at this verse here. It it captures this so well and so clearly. It says the heart, your heart, my heart, is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? We're not to look to our feelings to form our facts. How many of you here, have you ever followed your heart, did what felt right, sought out your personal truth or whatever sort of term you want to attach to it, and then made a terrible mistake? You're thinking, why did I do that? In the moment, it felt good because I was angry, because I was depressed, because I felt whatever it is I felt, and I acted on it, and I said, what did I do? How many of you, have you ever had a situation where you did what you felt and then you regretted it or you experienced how your feelings can wage war with God's word and God's will, like inside of you? Romans chapter 7 talks about this, where Paul is just articulating this internal battle within him. He's like, the things that I, I want to do, in other words, honor God, I don't do. And the things I don't do, I want to do. And, and who, what is this law and this work that's going on inside of me? What a wretch that I am. And, and I think we all have had this experience where our feelings need to come under the lordship of Christ, not be propped up as Lord, Because when we do that, especially as followers of Christ, we will find ourselves in these positions of battle. And history has a long, long line of people and tragic stories where men and women who followed their heart, who lived out their feelings, unhindered, unencumbered to form their identity. And their lives have been wrecked. Their marriages have been wrecked. And so much more. It is completely tragic Feelings are something you have, they're not something you are. Feelings are something you have, they're not something that you are. So here's our principle on this lie that I wanna drive home for us this morning. It's this idea, don't follow your heart. Ignore Disney and all its trappings with this. Do not follow your heart, follow the one who created it. Follow the one who created it. The Lord is your creator You and I, you are his design. And we get to learn from him and seek out him and what he tells us who we are. He created you, he knows you, he loves you, he's pursuing you. And we get to discover what he says and then strive to live that out. Look to him for your identity, not to the feelings that are within you. Because here's the truth of the matter. Expressive individualism and all of its trappings what really is going on here is that it is rooted in what I'm gonna call the sovereignty of the self. Because expressive individualism allows you, allows me in this case, whoever there is, is buying into it, to take the place and sit on the throne of being God of your own life. You get to be in control. You get to call the shots. You get to say what is true or not true. You get to become the full and the final authority of your life. And whenever we do that, for any reason, we're in trouble. We're in trouble. We are built to follow the God, not to be God. But this is what expressive individualism does and where it brings us. And it's caused incredible damage. Can I just give you a few examples? I mean, just a few. This steps in and looks at the last 50 years or so in culture and, and what's going on for example, in Gallup, this is a Gallup poll, you can Google it on your own, but it tracks American happiness. And today it's at its lowest level in the history of America since they've been tracking this thing. And you can go back and you can look in the 1960s and the level at decade by decade continues to decline and go down to where we're at today. And so we see it play out that way. How about this one, the divorce rate? I'm gonna show you a graph here because this is fascinating. When you hit the 1960s, you see a dramatic increase in the divorce rate as the sexual revolution and expressive individual came into place. The damage it caused to marriages was remarkable. The proverbial 50% of couples get divorced was true because of those types of uh, what we see going on and what we've been talking about this morning and how it peaked there in the mid 1980s. Now you can look at this graph and say, well, yeah, that's half the story, but look at the other half, it's going down, yay us. No, no, that's not actually what's going on. Because what's going on here is that the generations that followed who grew up in these divorced households, they began to come under the impression of, well, why would I ever get married? I got a 50-50 shot, I'd rather skip all the messy I saw with my folks. And so we have today a massive spike in people living together and not getting married or just not getting married. And so the marriage rate is declined, so naturally the divorce rate is in decline. But it's not because we're healthier, because the breakup rate of couples that cohabitate versus married is significantly higher than the divorce rate. So it's causing actually more damage that's going on. Expressive individualism is not serving us well in terms of our marriages. Another one, there's no slide for this, you'll see why in a moment, but several studies over and over show that the more unhindered your sex life is, the more unsatisfying it is. And so what movies pushes and TV and this idea of sleep around as many partners as you can have, be free, you know, be unhindered, it actually does the opposite of what you think it's gonna do. That God's design is the best design. The studies show, and I'm just gonna be blunt with you, the people who have the best sex are people who are following Jesus and are married one man, one woman for one lifetime in that setting. And that's what studies show over and over again. And I could go on. Actually, I have one more. Because one of the things that is discouraging, these are all discouraging for cultural sake, but one of the things that we find that is the most discouraging is that the studies of the behavior between culture and those who say they're Christian is not much different. We as a big C church, we're not necessarily a city on a hill or a bright light for others to look at and say, hmm, that's different, maybe I should be like them. That we tend to live exactly like culture. We tend to watch the same movies as culture. We tend to behavior-wise do the exact same things and nothing is different. And probably because we tend to believe the same things. Can I give you one example? This is from Pew Research. And they studied those and polled those, excuse me, that say self-identify as Christians, people who follow Jesus. And 57% of Christians, they found, held, or hold to the view that if you're in a committed relationship, even though you're outside of marriage, that sex is just fine. And 50% of Christians said that hookups are no big deal. That shouldn't be. Because that's not what God's design is. That's not what his will is. And there's protection underneath his design. There's protection underneath his will. And yet the church, big C church, we're buying into the same types of things. And we're going along with it and thinking it's okay. But it's not. It's not. Today, expressive individualism, which is a term you won't hear. I mean, you can look it up and study it, but you won't hear it because it's been repackaged. Today, expressive individualism is repackaged as sex positivity, and maybe you have heard that. And sex positivity is a philosophy. It's, a, it's an idea. It's a movement that's talked about in all kinds of places, but it's, it's based on four different premises when it comes to sex. Uh, number one is the only thing that matters is consent. Number two, and if you're a parent or grandparent, this should turn your stomach that the younger you are, the better it is in your youth to experiment, to try things, to do stuff, be unencumbered, because the only way that you can be sex positive is to experiment. Number three, the third sort of premise is that sex and this purpose is pleasure. But for God, it's so much deeper. It's so much more than that, of course. And then number four, that living out your sexual desires, whatever they may be, that that's what leads to freedom. That's where you find freedom when you live that out. That's sex positivity. Now, if you don't agree with that, there's anything about that you're like, I don't, I don't think that's good. And I hope there is, by the way. Then you are labeled then sex negative. And if you're sex negative, well, that means that you are repressive and you are judgmental and the list goes on and on. But I just wanna encourage us and remind us that God's design for sex is not repressive. It's good. It's holy. It's beautiful. It's designed for marriage because it is the physical portrait of your wedding vows that is designed to knit a husband and wife together all the days of their life. And there's so much more that we can say about it and we will next week. His design is not repressive and expressive individualism is not helping us. It is hurting us it is hurting families and it is hurting marriages and it is hurting mindsets we are not better off than we were 50 60 years ago the thing is culture says express yourself but jesus says deny yourself and i hope you I hope you agree with what i'm about to say but the most the deepest satisfaction The most meaningful satisfaction that you and I can can find in our lives doesn't come from chasing the world, but living out the word. And the only way you'll ever experience that or know that that's true is to experience it and to say, okay, God, I'm all in. I'm tired of chasing the world. I'm tired of doing it just like everybody else. I want to do it your way. But again, culture, we've bought the lie. And we're being ushered along right with it in terms of what we see happening in the world today. So that's lie number one from the 60s that continues to reverberate today. Here's our second out of two. Our second lie is this, that my identity is my sexuality. That they're one and the same. They're identical. And it's hard to overstate how unprecedented this is. In human history, we've never talked this way. We've never we've never sort of viewed things this way. But what's happened is expressive individualism has made your feelings your facts. It's made your feelings your facts. It's made sexual desire or attractions that you have not something that you have, but rather something that you are. You are your attractions. You are your feelings whether it's sexual or otherwise. And so the result is, see, sex used to be something you did. Now it's who you are. It used to be an activity and now it's an identity. It's changed. This is why if you have, if you have a man who is attracted to another man, that's a feeling. That's a desire. If you have that dy- dynamic in place, then we say he is what? He is a gay man, that's identity. You see how it ushered from feeling to identity because if he is a gay man, he cannot escape from it. It's neither his choosing or whatever the case may be with that in terms of his wanting. It's who he is. He can't escape. He has to live that out if he's gonna be integritous with himself. And this is why this is so important we talk about identity because whatever controls the shaping of your identity controls both who you are, what you do, and your future. Identity is so, so important. See, we always live out who we believe we are. And so the idea of identity is absolutely critical. Now, can I go a step further with this? Well, I'm going to. If your identity is fixed by your sexuality, if that's the thing that, that informs and forms who you believe you are, you've given that, by the way, way too much power. But what happens is then I have to, a person has to express that in order to experience love. And this is where we get the expression, I know you've heard it, love is love. And on the surface, it sounds reasonable. And one of the problems with that expression, there's number, but one of the problems with the expression is that in English, we have one word for love, love, there it is. Love my wife, Laura, love my new pair of shoes, right? It's, it's sort of just love. And you sort of rely on context, I suppose. But when you use the word love is love, one of the things that's baked into that is it carries this idea that sexual love, romantic love, is the only kind of love or the best kind of love. But that's just not the case. For example, the New Testament was originally written in Greek. And the Greeks, I think, got it right on this because when they talk about love in the Greek language, they have 14 different words that talk about different types of love because they wanna be very precise because not all loves are the same, if you will. Now the Bible picks up on that. The Bible, uh, New Testament that is zeroes in, especially on four different examples of Greek words for love. here they are, you can take a picture of the slide or write them down, but these are the ones that are primarily in the New Testament. So you have eros, which by the way is where we get the word erotic from, and that refers to sexual love. You have phileo, That ties into like Philadelphia, city of brotherly love. That's a friendship love, brotherly love, that kind of a thing. Storge, which talks about family love. You're getting the idea of these distinctions here of love. And then you have what I'll call the most important agape love. Uh, sacrificial love, this unconditional love, this, this word that was was built for the New Testament because they had to figure it out and find a way to communicate a God type of love that he has for us, this unconditional sacrificial love exemplified by Jesus on the cross, a love that he has for us that we're called to have for him to demonstrate to one another. See, here's the problem. When we let anybody or the LGBTQ plus community... Simply say that love is eros love, sexual love is sexual love, essentially what love is love is saying. If we go along with that, then we miss the opportunity to point them to the most important type of love, agape love, to experience a love that really matters. That is most satisfying, the kind of love that as a husband and wife, husbands lay down your life for your wife and wives submit to your husbands in this relationship that they're to have with each other rooted in what? I mean, eros is a part of a marriage relationship, but that's not the foundation. If it is, that marriage is in trouble. It has to be agape type of love. Eros is important, but it is far, far from the most important type of love that we're called to have. We want people, all people, anybody to experience God's love, agape love. And eros is not agape. They're very, very different. And we want to help people, anybody experience. We say help people find and follow Jesus. And that agape idea is baked into that, that they would know the love of God. They would experience what it means to be in relationship with him. That they would know that you are not your sexual attractions. You have those, you have desires, but that's not who you are. God has designed you and built you and endowed you with incredible worth and value. He's pursuing you. He wants to use your life. Ephesians 2:10, it's not in your notes, you can go back to that for we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for you to do. His fingerprints all over your life, to use your life despite your sexual attractions, despite any of these things that are attached to it. You are so much more than that. That's what the Bible says, and that's what God is declaring. And that's what we need to hold on to. Those are two lies that continue to help explain how we got to where we are today. In closing, I want, to, um, I want to give you two action steps, two lies, two action steps. The first one is I want to ask you to memorize two verses. Romans chapter 12, verses one and two. And you've noticed here in recent weeks, I've been, I've been asking you to memorize verses because when you get God's word on your heart, on your hard drive of you, then the Holy Spirit can use that to help you in the moments, in the time of need and to remind you and anchor you to what is true in the midst of battering by culture for for messages that are contrary to scripture. Here's what this says. It says, therefore, I urge you brothers and sisters in view of God's mercy to offer your what? What? your bodies as a living sacrifice, meaning all of it to him on a metaphorical altar saying, God, I'm all in. This this temple, this body that you have provided, I give back to you that I would use it in a way, you are not your body, you have a body, but I would use it in a way, you would use it in a way to honor him So as a living sacrifice, and here it describes it even more, holy, meaning set apart, different, and pleasing to God. You see, this is your true and proper worship. It is good to come together on Sundays and sing. But worship is not just singing. This is a picture of worship, of saying, God, all of me for all of you. I want to offer my body as a living sacrifice for you. That's verse one. Verse two, he continues, says, "Do not conform." That word "conform" means to be like pressed into a mold. This is this is outside in kind of a thing. This is um, I'm going to act like everybody else acts so I can fit in, so I don't get mocked, I don't get teased, so I don't stand out in any kind of way. And so this is this is. Behaving like everyone else. Here's the problem. When you conform and you act like everyone else because it's outside in, all of a sudden it changes your heart inside and you begin to believe the lies. So Paul says, don't don't do that. Don't conform to the pattern or the ways of this world or literally it means age, but be, here's the difference, transformed. Transformed is the opposite. Transformed is inside out. It means be a new person on the inside, live that out so that your actions follow who you really are. Transforming is the work that Jesus does. This is the Holy Spirit in you that takes the word of God to help you become like the son of God, to lean more Jesus-like in your actions and attitudes and behaviors and all of that. So he says, do not be transformed, or excuse me, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Because how you live always follows how you think. We renew our mind as we get into his word, as we learn his will, as we want to follow more of who he is. and We obey him. And here's what happens if you do this. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good and pleasing and perfect will. For your life. This is so important. we need verses like this, we need truth like this, and you and I need this in again memorized and in our heart because we live in a day when sex is God. And sexuality and sexual expression and all that's attached has become worship. That's what we see, that's what we're observing happening in the world today. I wanna share with you a verse from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18. Paul is writing these words to a church in a city of Corinth in Greece. And Corinth was like Las Vegas is. That was sin city, Corinth was. It was, I don't have time to go into all that it was. But here you have these brand new Christians and this brand new church, and they're sort of a dumpster fire of a church. They got all kinds of problems. But nonetheless, they're trying to figure it out. And so Paul is trying to help them remotely and he's writing them these letters. And so they wrote a letter to Paul and Paul wrote to them. So that way, 1 Corinthians is actually 2 Corinthians. And then they wrote back and then he wrote again. And you have all these letters going back. We only have the two, first and second. But nonetheless, you have Paul saying these words tucked away in verse 18 of chapter six. He says, flee or literally run, sprint from sexual immorality because all other sins a man or woman commits are outside of his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. What's Paul saying here? This is so important. Sexual sin is unique. It's sinning against your own body. And here's how you know this is true. If you just take a moment now and you think back to your past, all the mistakes and all the moments and all the things that you've done. What you sort of observe, I think you will observe, is that it was, it's your sexual sin that most stands out. In other words, it's the thing that you remember the most. And maybe you're haunted by the most. Maybe something that you did to somebody else or something that somebody else did to you. But either way, there's something different about There's a different gravity about sexual sin. And that's what Paul is getting out here when he's talking about this, this very idea. There's a pain attached to it. You see, again, there's protection when it comes to obedience to the Lord. And so this verse in Romans chapter 12, we talked about, I, don't, I wanna just encourage you as strongly as I know how if there are ways that you're conforming to the ways of the world, do an audit of your life. What are you watching? Movies, etc. What What are you websites? What are you listening to? What are those things that are influencing you? Don't, don't conform anymore, but offer your body as a living sacrifice, holy, pleasing, and be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This is so countercultural today. You will stand out. You'll be swimming upstream. I understand that, but this is what we're called to as followers of Jesus. Which brings me to number two: the sex, second um, and final action step. And the band can come on up at this time, if you would please. And I'm going to say it as a question: Is is sex or your sexuality your God? Is it your object of worship? Is it the thing that you pursue more than anything else? Is it the thing that is, 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 has your heart more than anything else? And it may be for some here this morning that this is an area where it's time to repent. It's time to come to a place of surrender. It's time to take, to take that in all honesty, being genuine and authentic and saying before God, God, turn it over. I confess what you already know. And would you help me to come to a place of repentance? And repentance simply means turn around. It simply means you're going one way and you repent, you just turn. And the thing that's beautiful about that is when you repent, you don't have to chase God. He's right there waiting for you with open arms. And so it's coming to a place of repentance and surrender. So maybe for you, it's about pornography it's sleeping around against the things that you're watching, you're engaging, you're consuming. I don't know. I don't know what it is for you. But coming to a place where you confess that is critical. I want you to remember this morning that you have an enemy. And your enemy is looking, and I, my opinion is doing a wonderful job. He's looking to make sexual sin look normal and to make God's design for sex and sexuality look crazy strange. And we're buying it. But He is looking to steal, kill, and destroy your life. He does not have your good interest at heart. And you might be on a road today that's leading to a place of destruction destruction of you, your mind, the people that you love around you, your marriage, your children. It goes on from there. And so I'm calling people to a place of surrender today. Luke chapter 6, verse 46, Jesus asked a poignant question. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord? You don't do what I say. This is convicting. Are we showing up on Sundays and we're calling out and we're worshiping Lord, Lord? But when I walk out these doors, I take over. I'll be the captain of my life, the determiner of my destiny, and the decider of what I do. There was, uh, years ago, close an illustration, uh, during the Crusades, a long time ago. The Crusades were a, a series of wars, not just one. And the Catholic Church was trying to take back Jerusalem and the Promised Land from the Muslims and the church, the, Catholic, the only church at that time, would, would raise up soldiers and, and whatnot. And there was this unique practice that they would do. These soldiers would come, and before they would be shipped off to war, they would get baptized. Fitting for a church to do that. But here's what was different about this baptism. They would, they would put the soldiers in the water, and they would take the soldiers, and they would, like we do here at New Hope, they would go to immerse them into the water. But as each soldier did that, they held in their arm. As their sword. And as they would go under the water, they made sure that that hand and that sword never went under the water. Because it became a declaration, God, I'm yours. Except this. You don't get my hand and you don't get my sword what I use to kill with. You don't get that. You can have everything else. And I think... That could be a fitting picture for where some or many are at today. God, you can have my life, but you don't get my time. God, you can have my life, but I'm going to keep this out of the water. You don't get this part, not this part. God, you can have my life, but you don't get my addictions. God, you can have my life, but you don't get my sex life if there's anything in your heart and life where you have that perspective, where, where you are, are holding back and not coming to a place of full surrender or maybe you've, you've just bought into some lies, can I invite you and ask you this morning to, again to come to a place of repentance? Here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna metaphorically we're gonna sing about it and we're gonna to come to the altar. And I'm gonna ask you to do some business with God because if the stats are true and there's no reason that they're not, this is something that impacts so many of us. And would you come to a place of surrender this morning? The worship team is gonna sing and I want you to sing with them. And then in this song, you're gonna be invited and have a chance to pray. Just you and God and to lay it out, and to say, no more. No more of me sitting on the throne. No more expressive individualism. No more of me calling the shots. I surrender it to you. Would you do that with us today? Let's worship together.
1: Can you please stand and worship with us? reflect on what we sang already, the invitation is clear, the invitation is wide open to bring forth, maybe for the first time, the things that burden you, the sin that weighs heavy, that entraps you. Though it lies and, and seems to offer freedom, rather, it is the very thing that enslaves you. I encourage you this morning, this is the time. It is truly the time to bring those things before the throne of Jesus Christ. Let's take some time to to reflect and repent in the places where the Holy Spirit is convicting us. respond as the holy spirit is leading you we continue in worship the lyrics to come are incredible it's what we're about to sing as we are about to rejoice and proclaim that we have an incredible incredible savior in jesus christ that the very burden right now maybe that seems so so heavy the darkness that seems so dark becomes real light real quick as we reflect on jesus christ our savior
2: and he of fire. Jesus is calling. Jesus is calling.
1: Let's pray together. Father God, we we give you glory this morning, and I I pray that, that there is a strong response. That as Jesus calls, that we would hear his voice, where the Holy Spirit convicts and draws out sin and darkness, that we would respond by saying, Lord, and in declaring Jesus Lord, that we would live our life in such a way that demonstrates that he is Lord. That our words would not empty, be empty, but that our, our heart would follow. Father God, we give you this morning. Jesus Christ, we are so thankful for your sacrifice to buy us back and to offer us freedom from sin. We love you, Jesus, we pray in your name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for joining us this morning. I want to encourage you to join folks in prayer this morning if you are feeling led to do so. Otherwise, God bless. Have a wonderful Sunday.